Welcome back to Neurology Exam Prep from Yale University Neurology Department. I'm Safa Abdelhakim from PGY3, the Neurology Program, and I have Dr. Jennifer Kim, uh, who's a neurocritical care attending, who might be a familiar voice to you all. Together, we'll go through intracerebral hemorrhages. Um, we had promised that before in the neurotrauma, so it's great to have her back. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me back. I'm excited to chat. Of course. I think intracerebral hemorrhages uh, could be a very good clinical topic for everyone, but they're also, they are included in a lot of the examination questions. Um, so this should hopefully be a beneficial tool for both purposes. Um, so we can start talking about uh, intraparenchymal hemorrhages um, and possibly can go through some of the etiologies as well as some um, radiological characteristics of every etiology. Would you mind telling us more about hypertensive IPHs? Sure, absolutely. Hypertensive uh, intraparenchymal hemorrhages are one of the most common forms of um, intraparenchymal hemorrhage or IPH that you will see as a neurologist or a neurointensivist. Um, it's usually, as the name implies, a result of hypertension, so longstanding hypertension and or uh, poorly controlled hypertension. Um, one of the main ways that we uh, tell that someone um, is likely uh, to have had a, a hypertensive hemorrhage, uh, one is, you know, by their history, right, if they have a longstanding history of hypertension and have other sort of systemic indications of hypertension, that can be a clue. The second is um, sometimes sometimes their blood pressure can also be a clue to um, the etiology, although it is also common that no matter what your etiology of hemorrhage is, that people's blood pressure can be high initially. Um, so that's something that you take with a grain of salt. And then the third thing is, uh, is looking at the location of the hemorrhage. And so it turns out as we talk through a number of these different types of intraparenchymal hemorrhage that the location in which they happen uh, can often be a clue as to uh, what the etiology is. Now, it's not 100% um, definite that the etiology will be entirely defined by its location, but you can start to group patients um, based on uh, often, you know, sort of uh, class them into these different categories based on the location of their of their bleeds. You know, so these uh, bleeds tend to, uh, these hypertensive hemorrhages, they tend to be uh, much more in the deep structures of the brain. So the basal ganglia, thalamus, the brain stem, and then sort of the deeper parts of the cerebellum as well. Um, and so that's, that tends to be the most common um, locations for, for these types of hemorrhages. And again, if you look for um, not only the main hemorrhage that they have, but also for patterns on MRI scan of um, my, what we call microhemorrhages, which are seen on the susceptibility weighted image or the SWI, then the patterns of those microhemorrhages can also be a clue to the bleed etiology. And as we remember from medical school, it's more like the, uh, uh, the lipohyalinosis process that happens from longstanding hypertension that would affect these lenticulostriate arteries. How about vascular malformations as another etiology for IPH? Absolutely. So um, vascular malformations um, are another important type of um, IPH etiology that one must consider when you're seeing people down in the emergency department and trying to figure out why they've had a, ble a brain bleed. It's often why we get um, uh, vessel imaging in plate patients with brain bleeds as well to look for um, these types of uh, malformations. Aneurysms tend to be something where we have a lot more sort of bleeding into the subarachnoid space. It's much less common to have aneurysms that rupture 
just into the intraparenchymal space, but you that does happen in rare circumstances, or you can have a mix of intraparenchymal and subarachnoid hemorrhage. Um, that's a result of an aneurysm, so that's one type of abnormality. Um, more commonly, you'll see things like um, arteriovenous malformations. So AVMs are the other type of uh, malformation which can uh, can present with IPHs. Um, and so the reason why is because these these AVMs tend to be sort of entangled within the brain uh, tissue parenchyma themselves. And so um, and so when they uh, rupture or bleed, um, they tend to bleed into the parenchymal space. And, and it usually happens either because of, you know, weakenings at, um, at the nidus or the pool of where the uh, abnormal connections happen between the arteries and veins or from aneurysms that, um, that develop as, a, as part of the AVMs and that they themselves tend to be the sort of weakest and most friable part of the AVM. And so those um, can rupture. So those aneurysms within an AVM can also rupture and cause uh, intraparenchymal hemorrhage. And then the other type of um, vascular malformation um, that we can talk about is a cavernous malformation. So these are a little bit um, different than the um, uh, AVMs that I talked about. So cavernous malformations tend to be sort of an abnormal venous uh, collection um, that um, exists within the brain. And so it's a much lower pressure system. And so when it bleeds, it doesn't sort of cause these massive, massive hemorrhages that are under high pressure, like an AVM or a hypertensive hemorrhage or other types of hemorrhages might happen. It tends to be very sort of localized to the area of where that cavernous malformation is, um, because, again, because it's that lower pressure system. And so uh, that that tends to be another type of, of brain um, bleed that you can you can get some clues about slightly based on sort of a uh, location, but mostly based on appearance of image uh, on imaging, as particularly the MRI scan. Um, so just in terms of um, diagnostics for these vascular malformations that may be a cause for intraparenchymal hemorrhage, again. Um, uh, uh, AVMs are probably the most common, followed by cavernous malformations and then aneurysms. Um, and so um, each of these will have unique patterns um, on CTA imaging um, and so and MRI imaging. And so the CTA will help you define particularly the AVMs and the aneurysms. So aneurysms will look like small outpouchings of the blood vessels. And so they look like little balloons often that come off the blood vessel or that the blood vessel itself has sort of a widened abnormal portion. AVMs will almost look like a spider web of blood vessels. And so if there are sort of, if there are a lot of blood vessels that are, um, you know, kind Coming off in a particular direction, uh, you know, sort of air, uh, area that then more than you expect, then you want to, especially if it's near the hemorrhage nidus, then you want to think very strongly about um, AVM being a, a, a likely diagnosis in those patients. Um, and then cavernous malformations actually are often pretty hard to see on just CT, um, CT or CTA imaging by itself. And so they tend to be better, um, better assessed on the MR imaging. Um, and so these have a typical sort of like popcorn appearance on the T2 sequence of MRI scan. So that tends to be one of those PIMP questions or um, maybe a right question that exists um, in terms of identifying those types of um, causes for an intraparenchymal hemorrhage. Any particular uh, locations that we should be looking for for AVMs? Do these abnormal connections manifest and prefer certain locations anatomically? Yeah, it's it's a really good question. So um, AVMs honestly can happen anywhere. 
they tend to be um, much larger in, uh, they tend to grow much larger in cortical spaces. Um, and so if you see a very large one, often it's sort of in that super temporal cortex, but it can be, but these can be anywhere. Um, you can have very small AVMs that, you know, sort of are in the deep cerebellum or even, you know, less, I would say less, much less commonly the brainstem. It actually kind of relates to how um, severe we think those AVMs are. We actually grade them based on, on location. You know, so one of the things that we think about with um, AVMs in particular is sort of how high grade they are. Um, and so, and um, obviously, because that has implications both from a surgical standpoint and from a patient outcome standpoint. And so there is a grading scale that exists called the Spetzler-Martin grading scale. And so it takes into account a few different components. So one is size. Um, so things that are less than three centimeters tend to be, you know, thought to be, you know, a better kind of a, a better predictor of outcome, whereas um, the, um, you know, larger than six centimeters tends to be thought to be higher grade. In terms of location of um, the bleed, actually, it's the, the draining vein that matters. Okay, so, so often AVMs have, you know, sort of feeder vessels, right, the arteries that feed into the pool, the nidus pool, and then, and then these draining veins. And so if there is a major draining vein that is superficial, that those tend to be sort of lower grade, whereas if they're deep, i.e. harder to get at surgically, those tend to be a high, uh, considered higher grade um, AVMs. Um, and then the last thing is if they are an eloquent cortex, right? So if they are an eloquent cortex, then again, surgically, you, you are much more reticent about um, resecting them because they, um, you know, unlike some of these other types of aneurysms, the, the AVMs are actually completely intertwined within the brain tissue. And so in order to actually um, resect out the AVM, it's not like you can just pull out the blood vessels by themselves, you often have to resect quite a bit of tissue that it's intertwined with. Um, and so if it's in eloquent tissue, then that's um, much harder to have, obviously do a full resection without causing um, deficits for the patient. Understood. That's a great review. Thank you for that. And then another etiology is uh, bleeding and coagulopathies. Uh, do you have any particular uh, pearl to share about that? So basically, if you have a coagulopathy, either because of some genetic reason or because of some iatrogenic reason, like you're on a blood thinner, if you do have a hemorrhage, um, as you can imagine, the likelihood that your hemorrhage will be a very large size is, um, is significantly higher uh, in those patients. And so you have to be very careful about counseling patients when, uh, when you're talking about um, the different antiplatelet uh, agents and the anticoagulants in terms of their risk um, of hemorrhage within the brain, and, and especially um, for the elderly folks in terms of falls and getting subdurals. But in terms of intracranial hemorrhages in general, but uh, intraparenchymal hemorrhages, especially if someone is on an anticoagulant medication, we now have multiple agents, depending on what, um, what anticoagulant they're on, that can help um, abate that, that bleeding risk, um, basically by you know, reversing or dampening the effects of the agent. The, uh, another etiology for, uh, for IPH would be a stroke with hemorrhagic transformation. And uh, I was wondering whether you had some thoughts about that. A stroke, uh, stroke with hemorrhagic transformation is another uh, way that we can see hemorrhage within the brain. So uh, for those who aren't familiar with it, it's basically you have an ischemic um, bed of tissue that happens from your stroke. And then often there is a delayed or 
non-delayed um, reperfusion or sort of return of blood flow to that um, area of tissue that had died. And so, um, and so that can often cause, because that, that tissue and those blood vessels are extremely friable, once you have that return of blood flow to that area, there is often, um, there can be hemorrhage into that prior stroke bed. And so that's what we call a hemorrhagic transformation. And so, uh, you know, people have different grading scales for the type of hemorrhagic transformation that you see depending on how large it is, whether it's symptomatic, things like that. Um, and so, um, so those are all important considerations in terms of understanding the impact of what that hemorrhagic transformation is. You know, what, one of the risk factors for having um, hemorrhagic transformation after stroke are, you know, if the stroke is very large, that tends to, you know, that's again, just more friable tissue that can have reperfusion injury. If the blood pressure is very high, that also, again, increases that blood pressure flow um, to that, that area of injured tissue and can cause those friable blood vessels to rupture. Sure. And then also anticoagulant use, uh, you know, I see that a lot. And, uh, and I wonder whether that's probably the reason why we always restrict blood pressure after TPA to less than 185 or 105 obviously because of the indications for TPA, but also probably because of that. And, you know, after thrombectomy, depending on how the case went and the revascularization grading, they always also restrict the blood pressure. Um, yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a great point. So, um, you know, so blood pressure management um, in ischemic stroke is actually a hot topic because I think that people are really kind of uh, you know, there's a lot of variation within the field as to how uh, how precisely to manage it, um, either in patients with successful thrombectomies or without successful thrombectomies. Um, and if there's sort of, um, in terms of that ticky score, sort of how much residual uh, sort of at-risk tissue burden there is, you know, there isn't a ton of guidance um, in terms of exactly what those parameters will be. And so, you know, people um, both institutionally and uh, individual providers will have different parameters in terms of what it is that they want their blood pressure ranges to be, which as a trainee can sometimes be a little bit frustrating to learn from. But I think um, also, um, if you're always just kind of asking for the provider's ration, your attending's rationale for why they've chosen that particular parameter, it's nice to hear at least what their personal rationale is for, for those blood pressure parameters. But the general principle of doing that is really trying to, to, to balance the risks of, you know, causing reperfusion injury, meaning like too much blood flow to that area of ischemic penumbra versus trying to get enough blood flow to the areas that aren't totally um, completely revascularized. Um, and so that's the balance of where you are. Um, similar principles, you know, in terms of TPA, because it's not a direct sort of mechanical opening of the blood vessels, that lysis can sometimes take a little more time. And, you know, we tend to be um, still stringent about the blood pressure goal of, of 185, just because we know the risk of hemorrhage um, from TPA is higher um, above that goal. But it's not quite as strict um, as many people practice after um, a thrombectomy in which you've revascularized somebody. And we often use nicardipine drip to manage the blood pressure. And then we're, we're always very worry if we have to resume anticoagulation for some reason without um, either evaluating the the stroke size or if it's an acute stroke that is large 
I've seen people use heparin drips um, just so that we can shut it off and get a repeat scan when we're able to. I think that that's a very also patient specific you know decision because everyone's patient every patient's risk factors um, for either ischemia or for a stroke in terms of or, or for hemorrhage in terms of their their indications for anticoagulation and their risks for anticoagulation. So that is uh, very much a sort of uh, patient personalized decision um, process that. Um, you know, has, you have to go through in terms of timing and amount and, and all of that stuff. Amyloid angiopathy is another etiology. Yeah, so this is, I would say, probably, um, especially in your older population, going to be one of the, just like hypertensive um, IPHs, is going to be one of your most common etiologies that you'll see um, of uh, intraparenchymal hemorrhages. These types of bleeds, um, cerebral amyloid angiopathy or CAA, you'll often hear it termed, um, really, they tend, again, just like hypertensive hemorrhages, they tend to have locations that they favor. So, you know, usually these, um, the pathophysiology is that there's sort of this abnormal uh, amyloid deposition within the blood vessels themselves. And for whatever reason, that deposition tends to favor the more cortical um, parts of the blood vessels. And so um, these, um, and so the bleeds that tend to happen in these patients tend to be the the lobar uh, location bleeds, okay? And so sort of very cortically based, often very large um, lobar hemorrhages. Um, those should sort of, when you see those locations of hemorrhages, that should definitely make CAA come at least, um, you know, sort of high on your differential overall, especially especially if you see it in an older patient and if they give you any sort of history of having cognitive decline within the last, um, you know, few years or a few months, like that, that's also, that also is a, a commonly associated feature of CAA. And from an imaging standpoint, um, again, just like hypertensive hemorrhages happen in certain locations um, and the microhemorrhages happen in certain locations, CAA um, similarly has um, unique patterns. And so the, um, those might the large hemorrhages and the microhemorrhages tend to be much more cortically based. And so, um, and so just uh, looking again for those patterns of, of the, um, of hemorrhages on that uh, SWI sequence of the MRI scan will be very helpful in terms of, um, of, in terms of identifying patients who have CAA. The other uh, radiographic finding that's very um, that's unique to CAA is something called superficial siderosis. It's basically it looks like a little subarachnoid hemorrhage um, in the in one of the cortical convexities, um, and so um, and so basically it's sort of like this yeah, siderosis kind of deposition um, that occurs. And most of the time, it's not symptomatic for patients, but there are cases that have been reported in the literature in which people will have you know what they think are either sort of seizures or some sort of cortical spreading depressions that arise rise from those those uh, superficial siderosis areas and can actually cause them to be symptomatic so it correlates to, to a recent case so I'm, I'm glad you know i got i got my answer right here i was like what is what is, what is that uh, susceptibility artifact there like <laughs> thank you for that would you mind sharing um some thoughts about tumors and the particular location as another etiology for ipH tumors uh, hemorrhagic tumors should be on the differential of um, anyone who, in which you're considering, um, in which you're evaluating for etiology of IPH. Um, again, it's a more rare, um, it's a more rare circumstance for, to present with um, a hemorrhagic lesion, but there certainly is something that should be on your differential. You know, usually in terms of tumors, you're again, you know, looking at location. So if it's a metast, you know, so most of the 
I would say the large majority of primary brain tumors aren't really hemorrhagic. There's rare circumstances in which that's true. They tend to happen more in kids, but most of the hemorrhagic uh, lesions that we're going to encounter as neurology residents tend to be metastatic lesions. Okay, so lesion, cancer lesions coming from elsewhere within the brain. And so as we know, metastatic lesions in general, they tend to sort of seed themselves at the gray-white junction because they come in through the blood, right, and they just sort of get stuck or lodge themselves sort of at the end arterials sort of near that, that gray-white um, junction. And so you'll often see that the hemorrhages happen in those um, areas, again, mostly supertentorially, but can happen infratentorially as well. And, um, and often you can see a lot, you know, so especially if you see that there is a lot of edema and it's out of proportion to the amount of bleeding that you see um, on imaging, then that can also be a clue to there might be an underlying lesion because obviously a lot of these metastatic lesions tend to be very, cause a big sort of edematous reaction within the brain since it's some sort of like foreign cells, right? So um, so those tend to be um, different clues to, um, to uh, the, the tumor being kind of a, a seed source. Now, another way that you can tell is by trying to do uh, contrast-based MRI scans um, to see if there is contrast enhancement um, of the lesion itself. But I will say acutely, it's actually very hard to assess um, whether there is underlying contrast enhancement inside a, a parenchymal hemorrhage because the, the hemorrhage, frankly, just kind of gets in the way of that interpretation. And so if you don't find another uh, reason for their um, intraparenchymal hemorrhage etiology within the hospital that you're confident about, then it's really important to make sure that those patients um, are followed up in clinic and they get repeat imaging in that sort of two or three month time frame. Uh, again, uh, repeat with contrast so that once that blood has resolved, they can actually more more uh, clearly visualize the area underneath the hemorrhage to see if there is an underlying lesion. What is the appearance of vasogenic edema on MRI? Uh, which sequences would it have a particular characteristic on? Uh, and I know that probably overlaps with, a, with another session. However, it's, it's, a, it's a nice uh, time to bring it up again. You're going to look at your, your flare sequences or your T2-based sequences that tend to sort of highlight the the water uh, that happens interstitially. And so I tend to use my fl the flare sequences to really look at those edematous um, kind of patterns um, overall. So it will look hyper intense uh, on flare imaging. And it will, will respect the, the gray white matter junction, right? It will. Oh, yes. Sorry. Yep. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I, I'm trying to remember. We always get asked. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Sorry, I didn't know that that was what you were asking. But yes, yes, it also respects the gray-white. And that's opposed to the cytotoxic edema, right, which does not. Another um, uh, less common, and, and I've never come across of it, actually, come across it, is uh, pituitary apoplexy. And I just sort of think of a postpartum woman. Uh, I yeah. don't have much else to say about that. Yeah, um, I'll say it. Yeah, it's also pretty rare. I mean, you do see it um, again more more commonly in women and most commonly in, in pregnancy or post-pregnancy um, uh, females. Um, and so, usually, acute onset headaches and um, and you know vision changes and then plus minus kind of your pituitary endocrine related symptoms um, is is how they present. And so, you know, they end up having to come to the ICU just to kind of monitor for. Uh, not only the hemorrhage, um, you know, uh, con you know, expansion, et cetera, itself, but also to m manage um, some of the potential hormonal changes that exist with apoplexy. But it's pretty uncommon. 
So just to recap, the etiologies that we've discussed is hypertension, vascular malformations, bleeding and coagulopathies, stroke with, with secondarily hemorrhagic transformation, um, amyloid angiopathy, tumors, and um, pituitary apoplexy. Just to delve into uh, a few more diagnostic points um, you know, that you've already broke, brought up. So you mentioned that CTA is helpful. It, uh, are there, is there something in particular that we look for, uh, particular signs that we should be aware of? Um, sure. Yeah. So, um, so in terms of the CTAs, so again, just thinking of through your etiologies, one of the ones that you, one of the things that you want to focus on is whether there is any vascular abnormality that um, that you can identify on the CTA. Um, and so, if you do visualize an aneurysm or an arteriovenous malformation um, or other malformations. Um, which we haven't talked about, like a fistula, um, those are all important things to understand, um, to, to sort of uh, recognize on imaging uh, with using the CTA. Even if there isn't any of those direct malformations, you want to look for something called the spot sign. So this is um, actually um, so, uh, um, this is actually a sign of active bleeding that's continuing to have happen. Um, uh, in the patient. And so the reason why, why this exists, what it is, is, you know, there is active contrast extravasation into the um, bed of the tumor itself, uh, into the bed of the hemorrhage, excuse me, itself. Um, and so you see this sort of bright spot of contrast in the middle of the hematoma um, or some, you know, the edge, you know, some part of the hematoma itself. And so if you see that sign, then that should certainly make you more um, concerned that that patient will continue to bleed actively. And so you want to be more rigorous about their blood pressure control. And if they have anything in terms of uh, reversible causes of their IPH, like being on anticoagulation, you want to make sure to administer um, those medications quickly. Are there other um, uh, equivalent signs on CT head of active bleed? Yeah, so there are other signs of active bleeding um, in uh, on just non-contrast head CTs. Um, I would say the most common one is um, is is basically the uh, where you'll see within the hemorrhage itself that the color of the hematoma is not all consistent, okay? There are different names for this. Um, I think, you know, some people call it an, a quote-unquote air fluid level, a fluid fluid level, or a blend sign. So those are all kinds of different names for what's described the same thing. And it basically what happens is when you have that active extravasation, you can um, basically, the, the, um, you have the very hyper, hyper acute um, hemorrhage, which will have a different appearance than the acute hemorrhage. Um, and so that can have um, different, um, different appearances on the CT scans. Um, so that is definitely something to look out for if there isn't, um, if it's not uniform um, across the hematoma. I will say those, those kinds of signs tend to be most common in patients who have coagulopathies, either nat you know, naturally or iatrogenically. Um, so those, those are the patients in which you want to um, that you want to, you know, look for these particular types of signs. Um, in addition, with that plus or the, the spot sign, you know, because of those signs that make you worried about active bleeding, not only do you want to make sure that your treatment is tailored to there their, their being a high risk of expanding their bleed, you also want to make sure that you're more closely evaluating the progression of their or the stability or instability of their hemorrhage. And so even though we normally 
might scan someone at the six hour time mark for those concerning signs, um, especially if someone's on anticoagulation, you probably want to do a repeat scan on that sooner side just so that you stay ahead of that game, you know, before the patient decompensates. What are the different ways to identify chronicity of a bleed on MRI? Yeah. <laughs> the topic is always confusing for me. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, to be honest, for me too, and I think I think part of the reason is because you'll see slightly different timescales on a lot of in a lot of different descriptions of of the bleeding. But basically, the principles remain the same. In which you have uh, MRI, you have an MRI scan, and you want to look at both the T1 sequence and the T2 sequence side by side for a particular hemorrhage. And so you want to basically identify it as one of three categories: ISO intense hypo-intense or hyper-intense, okay? And so there's lots, and, and so depending on what the bleed looks like on the T1 versus the T2, that will tell you sort of what the chronicity of the bleed is. And so there's lots of different mnemonics that exist out there. Um, you know, I think the most common one in med school is like a itty-bitty baby that like keeps going on um, uh, that I, I actually don't like because I can never remember. It just seems like mumbo jumbo to me. Um, but anyway, that's that's probably a very common one. There's one that I like, which is a little bit more morbid, which I can go into in a second. And then and then for the people who are more visually oriented, um, there there is also sort of a um, a, a graphic that exists to help um, help sort of remember where the T1, uh, what the relationship is between T1 and T2 as you go from the um, hyperacute phase to the chronic phase. Um, so it's a podcast, so I can't show that graphic to you, but definitely I think, you know, it's all over the internet. <laughs> exactly. Um, and so definitely, um, you know, go, go, go find it. Yeah. Um, I encourage our listeners to pull up the graph as you kind of talk, talk us through it. Yeah. I, um, and then there's another mnemonic, which is morbid. So please excuse the fact that it's morbid, but it has to do with bleeds. And so for me, it's an easier mnemonic to remember than the other baby babble one, which is, um, so I is ISO intense, B is bright, so hyper intense, D is dark, okay, so um, uh, hypo intense, okay, and so the, the mnemonic is I bleed, I die, bleed, die, bleed, bleed, die, die. So it's obviously very morbid, so I apologize for that, but, um, but basically those are, you know, going through that stepwise, a mnemonic can also help get you to um, get you to the different stages of of, um, of hemorrhage chronicity. So yeah, so um, again, each of these uh, sort of mnemonics or scales are a little bit different in timing, but generally the gist is that um, T1 is um, ISO intense, um, and it can be either ISO or uh, bright on T2, and then it goes to, um, it stays ISO, and then when you get into sort of the the two, one to two to three day um, time period, you end up still ISO intense on T1, but you tend to be dark on T2 or hypo intense on T2. Um, and then you go into a phase of being actually bright on T1, um, but, but remain dark on T2. Um, and, then, and then you sort of uh, go uh, in the op, uh, you go sort of across in the diagram to being actually bright on both sequences. So that is in that sort of subacute phase from the one week to 28 days. Um, and then you end up being dark on both phases, which is the more chronic phase sort of after that four week time period. So immediately it will be 
um, you know, could be isointensive in both. And then one to two days, it will start being dark on T2, uh, but still isointensive on T1. And then two to seven days will be dark on T2, but start to become bright on T1. And then seven to 28 days will be bright on both. Yep. Crossed over. Yeah. All right. Great review for myself as well. And then there are some, um, I see, you know, there's an ICH scoring system. Would you mind going over that with us? Uh, yeah, sure. So, um, so ICH scoring systems um, are basically around to kind of help assess. So there's sort of different reasons for different scores to exist. Um, and basically, you uh, ICH score has been like a score developed to kind of look at outcomes of mortality. Uh, you can get score. You basically get scores based on your GCS, your ICH volume, whether you have intraventricular hemorrhage as part of it, whether you are in the infratentorial space or not, and then it has an accounting, a little bit of an accounting for age. Um, and so, basically, the higher the score, the um, the, the sort of worse your likelihood of outcome is. Uh, so sometimes these are thought to be helpful in terms of, you know, so it's certainly helpful on a population basis. And then I think you can certainly use them to help guide yourself in terms of likely prognosis for patients um, inpatient uh, individually and to help guide families and patients in terms of what their likely um, outcome is. Obviously with the strong caveat that, you know, um, individual patients have, have different, um, you know, have individual circumstances that may otherwise color, um, color their particular um, outcome likelihood uh, beyond the ICH score. But I think it's a good kind of basis to, um, you know, to, to, to look at the bleed severity. I think we've explored the ideologies and di diagnostic tools. Uh, now we can kind of delve more into treatments. Um, what are some, I mean, so, you know, post-bleed, they will be monitored in the ICUs, but what are uh, particular aspects of their care that you pay attention to, including reversals um, that we can revisit now, reversal of um, anticoagulation? Um, okay. Um, so in terms of um, anticoagulation reversal, so again, if you think that um, a patient, uh, regardless of their etiology of hemorrhage, is on an anticoagulant, then obviously wanting to uh, reverse that the effects of that anticoagulant are extremely important in terms of um, helping to prevent a further expansion of their hemorrhage. Um, and so uh, now we're lucky enough, um, this I think, you know, until very recently to be in an age where we have an, a number of different um, reversal agents that are in our uh, toolbox that we can use. Um, and so if someone is on Coumadin, then you want, and, uh, and they're therapeutic um, or, or greater than, or at least greater than uh, 1.5 INR, then you want to be giving them um, the main reversal agent that we use th these days are, is, is something called PCC or prothrombin complex concentration. Um, and so uh, it can come in either three factors or four factors. I think in most institutions, they use a four factor PCC these days. Um, and so basically Basically, it replaces all of the factors that uh, Kuhn and suppresses, right, the generation of. And so, um, 
And so that's uh, the main agent, but it is, uh, and so it's very effective at reducing your INR level, but it doesn't, you know, it's not a prolonged kind of reversal. And so you definitely want to make sure that you are also administering vitamin K in those patients as well. So that's something to remember um, for those patients. If an institution does not have PCC available, uh, then you can give FFP instead. Um, so that is something, again, if you just give vitamin K and FFP, then, then that is um, also a potential way to try to help reverse, but if you can give PCC, that is um, that would be the preferred method for um, for warfarin re reversal these days, um, and pretty accepted uh, standard practice at most institutions. Um, in terms of the, um, however, you know, PCC is not that effective um, at reversing um, some of the newer agents. So the anti-10A um, agents that we often give, so things like rivaroxaban, apixaban, etc. Those agents. Um, Again, if, if an institution, especially if they're coming from a community hospital, they may not have um, the newest agents. You can use PCC to reverse those patients, but, um, but at institutions um, where it is available, a more direct reversal agent is, um, is something called indexinate. Yeah, and, and FFP is fresh frozen plasma. Uh, just for, for those of us who forgot what it stands for, and to be just a uh, much larger volume. Yeah, um, and so Indexinet is a new um, is a, a new agent that has uh, recently come on the market, and so it's a it's a direct um, sort of uh, inhibit uh, antidote basically or competitor basically um, of the um, of the anti-tenant A agents, and so um, and so that's why um, it can help kind of reverse the effects of the anti-tenant inhibitors that um, if a patient has recently taken. Some um, one of the dis major disadvantages of the drug is that it's extraordinarily expensive, and so um, so it makes it such that again, not all hospitals have it available um, on formulary. And so if um, if you have it available to you, I would say definitely use it. If you do not have it available to you, um, then you know you can administer PCC or um, other um, agents that um, to try to help in terms of overall reversal. Dabigatran uh, is another. Um, uh, direct prominent um, agent in which it has had an anti, uh, a sort of monoclonal antibody antidote for a while now. It's called idirucizumab, and so uh, and so that's another one. You know, so that's one to um, one to consider uh, for that particular agent. Um, and then in terms of um, your heparinoid agents, so um, for heparin and lovenox, um, your uh, reversal is going to be with protamine sulfate. Um, so it's a, a protamine is great as a heparin um, reversal agent. Um, and so there's, depending on the dose of heparin and um, that you've received and um, it, it, you can sort of titrate accordingly your protamine, how much protamine you need to administer. Um, for Lovenox, it's a little bit different and it's not, you know, sort of a perfect reversal agent for Lovenox. I'm sorry, for enoxaparin, but, um, but can be used as well. Um, other kinds of heat, what, what I'll call, for lack of a better word, hemostatic agents, right? Thing, other agents that we can use um, to help prevent uh, further bleeding, uh, are, you know, these bigger guns. So things like um, amino caproic acid or amicar um, and um, transaxamic acid or TXA. So those are other um, agents that we use most, they're most often used in sort of um, systemic hemorrhages, but are certainly agents that we can use for persistent intracranial hemorrhage as well, uh, particularly in the setting of trauma. What are surgical options that patients could have uh, with IPH? 
Yeah, so um, in terms of surgical options for intraparenchymal hemorrhage, um, I would say still current in current practice, the most common is uh, decompression. So basically um, where you take off a piece of the skull, a large, usually large piece of the skull, um, and uh, potentially with the dura opening as well and a duraplasty V, um, and then just leaving the skull off. So that is actually an accepted practice um, uh, for many for many hemorrhages. Um, clot evacuation in and of itself, you know, has a very storied history, which I won't get into, but um, basically has a lot of trials showing that um, for different modalities of um, clot evacuation that it actually has not improved outcome. And so there are, um, so many um, practitioners actually don't, uh, you know, don't favor doing clot evacuation um, for intraparenchymal hemorrhages. Now, I will say both from personal experience and from talking to colleagues, I think that's very, um, it's, you know, it's, I think people will still do clot evacuation um, in very select circumstances in which you think that the focality of their lesion uh, makes it so that they would actually benefit um, overall from clot evacuation and not just from decompression. So I think the most common that I have seen is with temporal lobe hemorrhages, where the temporal lobe, you know, the middle cranial fossa has really a limited amount of space um, to accommodate um, extra blood and extra edema before you start to have uncle herniation. And so, um, so in those kinds of cases, often I have seen um, people still go uh, move forward with um, with a hematoma evacuation. Um, there are a number of trials currently going on that are testing new newer technologies that are less invasive, less morbid, um, and thought to be more effective at evacuating the entire clot. And so those are all under investigation in terms of whether those will be helpful and change um, practice in terms of surgical management for these um, diseases. But certainly decompression in select cases, I would say, uh, with a lot of, you know, uh, variation in the fields, you know, there is still clot evacuation. And I think that um, some of these emerging technologies will, will be very um, insightful in terms of whether um, these um, minimally invasive modes of clot evacuation will actually be helpful. You know, for, for a rapidly declining Glasgow coma scale or for elevated ICP clinically, then, you know, I think, I guess, EVD would always be an option. Um. Oh, yes, absolutely. So um, so if you have someone, um, again, who who has an intraparenchymal hemorrhage, particularly if it's in the uh, infratentorial space, so a, a cerebellar hemorrhage, those patients very much benefit from um, an early early placement of an, uh, an EVD or an uh, external ventricular drain. Um, and so, uh, so those patients, certainly that is a surgical management decision that you can have in those patients. In the supratentorial space, you want to be a little more careful about putting um, an EVD in. Obviously, if they have intraventricular hemorrhage as concurrently with their intraparenchymal hemorrhage, then you, you can and should certainly think about it. But if it's just isolated intraparenchymal hemorrhage and you put in an EVD, um, sometimes you can actually um, uh, worsen shift um, by siphoning off uh, CSF. Uh, than if you hadn't put one in. And so you just, again, you want to be very thoughtful about the patients and the pathophysiology of the patient uh, for which you're actually considering an EVD. And then we always have mannitol and hypotonic saline. Uh, you know, you can always reference our neurotrauma episode for management of um, ICP crisis. Right. So just in terms of, besides the um, anti besides reversal of anticoagulation, um, oh, and again, uh, also, uh, you know, there's, um, with antiplatelet agents, some people will practice um, doing um, 
platelet transfusions, although a recent trial um, came out, the PATCH trial, that suggested that that's actually not necessary um, or, or beneficial in these patients and may actually be harmful. Um, but that's, you know, something that some people, practitioners do. But uh, in terms of mainstays of management for these, um, for these patients, you know, they need to come, uh, most of these patients need to come to the ICU um, for close monitoring, because obviously, again, you're not sure if their bleed is stable. Um, and so you want to make sure that you're watching uh, their neurologic exam very closely so that, you know, that hourly neuro exam is often very important in these patients. Um, especially if the bleed is large, um, you want to make sure that their blood pressure is well controlled. Now, the exact parameters are a little bit practitioner dependent because there's been, uh, you know, just based on different interpretations of the literature within the field, but uh, generally in the sort of 140s to 160s is usually a target, um, you know, blood initial blood pressure um, for people to try to help abate a further expansion of the hemorrhage. Um, so those are all um, important factors in terms of um, in terms of the medical management and obviously if there is a decline um, in that in the patient uh, in terms of their status overall um, related to edema or ICP or just expansion of the hemorrhage itself then as with any patient who is emergently declining you want to prioritize your ABCs right airway breathing and circulation and so if you need to intubate those patients etc you want to make sure that you um, are on top of that and that's one of the reasons to keep the patients in the ICU and then to have a management plan Plan, whether it be surgical or other medical managements of, you know, increased ICP and, and hematoma expansion. Something that I come across a lot is statin use with bleeds. You know, if we're admitting patients and they're on statin, statin and whether to resume it or discharge them from it. And, and, and I realize that this is probably more clinical than exam related, but I was wondering what your thoughts are on the topic. Yeah, sure, absolutely. You know, so, um, you know, statins are pretty widely used um, these days in, in lots of different patients. Um, and so, but what I think uh, one of the concerns has come about that, you know, statins at high doses can actually increase hemorrhage risk. And so I think that is the concern that people have when they talk about, um, you know, statin use um, after an intraparenchymal hemorrhage. Um, and so I think there have been swings in practice, actually, even throughout my, uh, even during the duration of my own training as to, you know, whether we start it, stop it, resume it, you know, when to resume it, at what dose, you know, all of those questions, I think, uh, come to bear. And I think are still very much questions uh, within the within the literature and I think there are active and there are active trials actually trying to look at this overall in terms of you know the safety of continuing stopping increasing you know reinitiating etc um so I, I think those are still slightly unanswered questions um how about seizure prophylaxis that's also another um topic where you when and when not to and yeah, that's a great, that's another great question. So I would say, um, really, you know, in terms of seizure prophylaxis, our main, you know, our strongest evidence for doing so comes with traumatic brain injury. And so certainly, um, you know, we do seven days of, of chemoprophylaxis, of uh, seizure chemoprophylaxis um, in, uh, in TBI patients. Um, but really, there isn't great evidence for just doing prophylaxis uh, seizure prophylaxis and other types of hemorrhage. So, and that includes intraparenchymal hemorrhage. So I would say while, um, you know, some, some folks uh, will just kind of uh, throw, uh, throw um, seizure prophylaxis on, you know, any, any ne new neurologically injured patient, you know, that isn't really the right that way to practice and isn't really evidence-based. And so what I would say is if a patient has 
seizures on presentation or during their hospitalization, then I, you know, then you, you would treat their seizures. Um, but otherwise, there isn't really good evidence to support um, prophylaxing people um, uh, for se against seizures um, in ICH. That's wonderful. Uh, thank you so much for this amazing review, um, very holistic review. Yeah, absolutely. 